If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Abigail Adams. In this episode, Abigail truly unleashes her brilliance as she warns her husband of a potential women's rebellion, discusses the difficulties of doing what is right when it conflicts with what is popular, and how she really feels about Samuel Adams. Let's talk specifically about something you wrote, we call in this time, it's quoted constantly, called Remember the Ladies. Can you tell me about that letter? And again, I have to say, I am shocked that my letters and my personal correspondence has made its way into the public record to the extent that you claim it has. This is back in 1776 as well, right? I I have it in my memory tied with the the illnesses of pox and, and, oh, that was was a mighty year. (laughs) Well, this was in an argument to John while he was working on drafts of the Declaration of Independence and trying to convince others in the Congress to adopt an independency. I asked him if he would, while constructing this new code of laws for this idealistic nation, if he might remember the ladies and remember that all men would be tyrants if they could, like he said, and that if they were reevaluating how governance ought to be established, if we were rethinking the way a country might be run and breaking down archaic rules of grander class structures and of haves and have-nots that take the opportunity to extend those rights to women as well. Because, as, as we said, half of the population subjugated, not legal entities in any way, and to try to establish some protections for their rights. If rights are being spoken of, if rights are being defended, then defend all of the rights, (laughs) for heaven's sake. Um, John's response to that letter, though, was, hmm, well, I... Total agreement? (laughs) Oh, he put me in a bit of a mood with his response to it. Now, granted, I had been a bit jovial uh, when I said that you should remember the ladies, and if you don't, we're determined to foment a rebellion um, and not hold ourselves uh, (laughs) by any code of laws which we did not agree to. Of course, that was a a jovial way to make the letter lighter. I'd been discussing many deep things at that time. But to, to point out that there should not be hypocrisy if establishing a new idealistic nation, that if he and his comrades in the Continental Congress were going to hold themselves subject to a new code of laws, that they insisted they needed to have ratified and, and have them be voted on and have them be approved by all of the different state legislatures. Well, it would stand to reason that if women were not taken into account and if we did not consent to be governed by those laws, then we ought to foment our own rebellion much the same as the rebellion of the United States against Great Britain. John's response to me was a little bit too jovial. If I recall, he <laughs> went on to say that 
that there had been such rebellion stirred up by the Continental Congress that they'd have reports of students and apprentices and servants growing rebellious all throughout the colonies and that different factions were up in arms and, and social structure was changing and, and falling apart all around us and, and how ghastly that was. And this was a, a criticism which was being held by some of the more conservative members or those who did not wish to break from Great Britain because the world was devolving into chaos uh, because of these rebellious notions. Uh, but John pointed out that my letter was the first of, uh, of a hint that a, an extraordinarily large tribe, the, the half of the population that was women, that we were grown discontent as well. But then he went on to say that uh, men were only masters in name and that since for example, as I said before, a woman might run her household finances or deal with maintaining the property. Since men often gave some of those leniencies, gave their consent in a non-legal way to their wives, that they were not really the masters of their households. And that if women were to be given a full slate of, of rights, that men would be entirely subjugated to the despotism of the petticoat. Which got me into quite a tizzy. Of course, John had finally written back to me in a reasonable amount of time, and it was simply to chide my words and make little of the fact that I had, I had made some honest points in my first letter. And certainly, even if there are some gentler husbands who allow their wives these freedoms and these liberties, there is no guarantee that we can withhold them or, or maintain them. There's... Yeah, once the husband dies, the rights die with him. Right. And and if the husband should, if even if he is kind one day, there is nothing within human nature other than the goodness of God to hold him back from being wicked the next day. And this is more of what I mean when I say that all men would be tyrants if they could. It, it speaks more to humanity than to just the male sex power in the hands of any will often lead to decay a moral and spiritual decay uh, and arbitrary power which is to say power that is given for illogical reasons and held by illogical reasons is very apt to break <laughs> and so claiming an arbitrary power of men over women is a shaky ground on which to establish governance when you first met John, you were very young. You were 15 years old, and John was 27 or 28, I think. That seems yep. like you would have had a hard time keeping up with him because you were just growing into being a woman, and he was a grown man. Did you have trouble keeping up, or were you intellectual equals at that point? What did that relation look like? Oh, well, certainly when we met, it was not... Not not a love at first sight, as you might uh, hear of with some fairy tale romances. Mr. Adams, in fact, uh, did not quite like me when we were first acquainted. Really? Um, yes, as you said, I was a I was a young woman. I I was just a girl at the time of our first acquaintance, and a bit of a precocious one. I I was exchanging letters and diving into literary works with my friends, and as a Parson's daughter had opinions about my community and my town and those around me. And John found me to be somewhat judgmental, which is fascinating because 
one aspect of, of my father's teachings, uh, especially in his rearing of children, was never to, never to speak ill of another. You can say only good things of others and hold your tongue if it's evil words you might speak. My grandfather had an even further philosophy where he just would not speak nicely of anyone or say ill of anyone. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> Mr. Adams and John, uh, my, my husband, yes, was uh, a bit put off, I think, by perhaps by the way my sisters and I were attentive to the situation. We met because my older sister Mary was being courted by John's friend Richard, Richard Cranch, and he, oh, Mr. Cranch, he, he is my brother-in-law now. He and Mary wed all those years ago, and, and he has been a dear friend since their courtship. In fact, I, I like to credit Richard with some of the greater literary works I've loved and consumed in my life. He made a good many recommendations to me. I greatly enjoy the correspondence and the friendship I've maintained with him over the years. And he has been, while not successful financially or, or always reliable in that sense, he has been good to my sister Mary. In any case, because my sister and I were mentally engaged, if not well-educated, we were attentive. We did not diminish ourselves necessarily in social gatherings beyond our own limitations. I think. So what did your parents think about John when they first met him? Oddly cantankerous for someone so young at that point. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> John has always been an opinionated sort uh, and himself always a bit judgmental too. If I seem to recall back in those days, he was quite known for uh, notations on, on how the ministers in certain towns would behave and their differences between them. I also think that might have been an element of John's dislike of my sister and I when we first met. He was not, not terribly keen on my father. Their relationship had grown. Uh, it, it grew over the time before my father passed, and it was a, a trusting one in the end. But my parents did not wish me to marry John, even though it, it was as I mentioned, years before we began courting in a romantic way uh, from that first meeting, mostly because he did not seem as though he might have strong prospects for a successful future. He was a lawyer at the time, but there are a great many lawyers in Massachusetts traveling the circuit. And he was a fairly young in his practice, just starting out and, and showed some promise, but he was not from a wealthy family and he had not had many vast major political or, or not political, any legal wins in his court cases. He's a fairly average, middling man to look at him from the outside. I was quite endeared to his mind. And even his notes on the people around us and the things he observed and, and the things that irritated him or got his blood rising, I, I was just drawn to the way his mind worked. And I could tell that there was if not a greatness of ambition before him, if he, he wasn't trying to make himself into a great individual, but that he had a, a strong and keen and flexible mind and a drive for good in the world that would make much of him, not for his own standing, but that, that the fruits of his labor might be an extraordinary thing to be a part of. As your parents could not see his potential, and you obviously could, I'm wondering if this age difference might have been something that was very good for you. Because here you are a person dreaming of 
libraries and books and education and science, as you've said. And here you have this man that comes into the picture with almost double the amount of knowledge in his brain because he's lived twice as long and certainly spent time learning and educating himself. I'm guessing that he would have been like a walking library for you. Yes, that was always quite a, a, a delightful thing that Mr. Adams would speak of, of literary works and, and theories and parts of history with me and, and that I could reference things to him and he knew what I was speaking of or writing of and that we could have vast, in-depth conversations with each other. If you'd been courted by some 17-year-old boy from a rich family, you probably would have fallen asleep at the wedding. <laughs> well, hopefully I would have woken up eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I do think that I needed someone who might challenge my mind, or that if I hadn't had someone who challenged my mind, that I might not have become the woman I am. Again, not that I, I, I view myself as a great individual figure, but I will concede that I, I look back on the years of my life and I've accomplished much and been many places and by the fortune that God gave me have had the opportunity to, to travel, to see other countries. Okay, I want to ask you a little bit about Paris and London specifically, but before I ask you about that, you were just using the word challenged. And this is one thing that it doesn't seem that you or Mr. Adams ever would walk away from a challenge. There was nothing that was hard that you would walk away from it because it was hard if it was the right thing to do. And that makes me think of when John was deciding whether or not he was going to represent the British after the Boston Massacre. And I... I, I, I look at that decision, and to be quite honest with you, it seems insane. I mean, his brother Sam Adams would have been screaming in his ear that that was a crazy thing to do. The whole world is saying, hang every one of these British soldiers, I'm guessing. And yet, John takes that case and supports the British. And were you for that decision, for them to represent them? Well, I knew it would be a great strain on the family, as you said, it was contrary to the popular opinion of almost all of our neighbors that there should be <laughs> leniency showed in any way towards the British regulars. Boston in the 1770s and the 1760s before, of course, this was just in 1770, at the time when John took the case, it could be a dangerous place if you ran contrary to the political beliefs of of the rest of the town, or from the more vocal, violent factions of the rest of the town, who were certainly spurred on by John's cousin Samuel. So there was great risk for us with him, with him taking the case and putting his neck out, so to say. But I did respect his decision deeply, because uh, one of the reasons he did it was to prove that we could offer justice, that we were not a, not a colony of rabble or barbarians who didn't hold through with justice, uh, that, that fair trial, that rights, uh, that English legal rights ought to be protected from, by everyone, and that angry mobs and, and public opinion ought not be the administrators of justice, that, uh, that logic and a fair trial were rights to everyone. It seems like great fairness honor. over comfort is where you were headed. Yes, and 
to be honest, that period of time was was a very <laughs> it was a very traumatic one. We were living in Boston at the time when the soldiers opened fire and those were killed. We were we were not far from the action in our townhouse there. I had lost a daughter just a few months earlier. Our our Susanna had grown quite ill and, and passed away. She was a fine fine little girl and, and I was at the time expecting uh, our son Charles. So the great fears that a mother has for her children and for her family weighed heavily into my experience of the of the year seventeen seventy. But being able to trust that my good husband was speaking for justice and speaking for ultimately the good of the world, not as a partisan speaker, but a defender of rights, <laughs> because those soldiers did have rights and they had rights to that trial and they had rights to have the story told in full and they had rights for most of them to be found not guilty and even those who were found guilty of manslaughter had had rights to have their sentences commuted. And so are you saying you I were for it in principle, but against it in the way that we all want to be part of the mob, even though we know it's not right sometimes? I mean, you just want to make a quick judgment, but in principle, you're saying that you think that they, that they needed representation? So are you saying he should have represented them? Are you glad? Did you support that? Yes. I suppose to distill it down to to make a short answer of it, yes, I I am glad that John argued for the soldiers, and and I am proud that he stood for the right side of history. I should hope it would be believed. Although at the moment, uh, as you said, the mentality of the mob, the, the vast sway of public opinion, and the very real fears that one has for their children and for the world we're living in where soldiers might open fire into a crowd just down the street from you. They, they lie in conflict with each other. But when it comes to it, to, to the logic and to the defense of human rights, I am proud to support John in his actions to defend the soldiers. And I am glad that justice was found and that more people didn't need to be put to death because of the terrible actions of that night in March of 1770. I think that that event is such a clear moment of what so many of the decisions in your life look like. They were all hard. Okay, should women own property or shouldn't they? I mean, do we need to hang these people or do we not need to hang these people? Should we go to France or should we stay here? I mean, it's just one hard decision after the other. Speaking of France, how'd you like France when you went there? I loved our house in France. It was a uh, it was a grand place, cold uh, and a bit dirty. Um, but certainly, after moving from our our small salt box farm in Massachusetts to a grand estate outside of uh, Paris, <laughs> I was never able to go back to such a small house again. Uh, I'll say that Paris was a bit jarring. The difference in the lives of the rich and the poor was astounding. Of course, we have poor in in America. We have we have poor in Massachusetts. We have our, uh, pensioners and and people who rely on community support. And and of course, there are those who need our charity. But the the number of people in Paris who were in need of charity and receiving it nowhere, in contrast with the 
grand extravagances of the French court and of diplomacy in France. Oh, they, they strike deep. You can't help but look at the suffering of the beggars in the streets and think there is not vast injustice being done. So that was frightening to, to have those realizations of such a vast difference between rich and poor, and I'm not at all surprised that that has come to a head. What's the role that women played in France when you were there? I keep going back to this thought where you say all men would be tyrants if they could, and this is a perfect example of that. I have a hard time imagining a woman standing in the seat, or sitting in the seat of power and just trampling on other men like this. Did women play a similar role that they did in the United States? As far as uh, legal rights and coverture, yes, there are similarities to it. French women, some of them have greater access to education. Of course, this is the, the upper classes. Most of those who we interacted with when we were in France were, of course, from, from the top tier of society, if not the royals and occasionally royals, then members of the court, members of diplomatic structures. And so while we might witness and encounter those, the poor, we didn't interact with them as much as we ought to have. I was not a great admirer of the women of France. Um, I found them a bit too bold for my taste while I was there. They could be quite crass, uh, I imagine would be a, a good word for it. A little too saucy <laughs> with their humor and their attitudes, a little too informal, even in those most formal and gaudy of settings. Informal, um, really? How did John jokes. feel about them? Oh, he found them quite amusing. <laughs> uh, of course, I, I, I had no suspicion at any point that my Mr. Adams was unfaithful to me in any way, but he tended to like the women being a bit more forthright or having a, a saucy joke to offer to a situation or being a, a bit more vocal in company, not necessarily to offer deep-held opinions or, or controversial topics, but to be jewels to a conversation. I, I think he was fairly charmed with the women, women of France in that respect. But as a somewhat humble parson's daughter, I did not find that sort of uh, vulgarity to my taste. <laughs> so how did, that, how did that change when you went to London afterwards? What, what was the experience there compared, because you went there the next year, right? Yes, we weren't too long in Paris and France. We enjoyed our time while we were there and, and got some good culture while we were at it. I, I should say that I, I make it sound as if France was, was terrible, but being able to go to the theater and the opera and, and witness the spectacular products of that old nation and that vital capital to it. I fell in love with the theater while I was in France and, and got to see more good theater when I was in England. England was a hard time for all of us. John was not favorably met uh, as the, the first uh, minister to the, the court of St. James, as you might expect, since we had just finished our war with Great Britain and America claimed its independence, to be the first American to represent the new nation. In the oh, yeah, I bet there were, I, I bet there were uh, lines of people waiting to, to meet him. <laughs> it was a 
a fairly hostile environment. <laughs> Occasionally, I would be drawn into it as well. They wrote things about us in the newspapers, and there was gossip, and there was coldness, and some good culture in England as well, and perhaps the customs a little bit more familiar because Massachusetts was an English colony, and we were we were English men and women up until 1776, and so the cultural background was a bit more familiar and stable perhaps than going to France, but it was not a, a friendly time. The friends that we made, good, strong compatriots were, in fact, some of the expatriates from the United States uh, who were living in London at the time. The painter, John Singleton Copley, and his wife, Susanna, they became very dear friends. They lived near us. Our daughter, Nabby, traveled with me when I joined John in, in Europe, and she met her husband there, and it was a charming little wedding they had at our house in Grosvenor Square. Was Nabby's husband English? Uh, no, uh, Colonel Smith had been uh, born in New York, but he was living in London at the time, and it wasn't long before he started uh, establishing a bit of a fondness for Nabby, who at that point was engaged to Royal Tyler back in Massachusetts. A bit of a scandal of all of that there, but Royal Tyler was not Nabby's ideal-suited husband. Honestly, that courtship went on a bit longer than it should have. Um, what about him did you not like? Oh, he was a bit of a rogue, uh, a bit of a, a rake. Uh, it claims to be reformed uh, in his temperament, but a mother always looks at her daughter's suitors with a, a skeptical eye on whether they will behave themselves and, and be dependable and reliable. But then the, the greatest injustice of it, or, or the greatest harm he did to Nabby, was that when we went to Europe, while she was engaged uh, and expected to someday return to Massachusetts and wed him, he never wrote to her. Now, I complained of John never writing to me, but you've seen John's correspondence. You know, he yes. did write. It just wasn't ever enough for me. Royal Tyler did not correspond with Bar Nabby at all. She lived in silence from him for months or for ages and he, he just disappeared i began here not an entire disappearance he still existed in massachusetts he was still uh, interacting with our friends and family in braintree and and in boston in fact i would receive updates on everything going on in massachusetts from my sisters when they would write and this was how i would hear rumors that Royal was speaking ill of Nabby or saying that they'd never been engaged to begin with or saying that he had written. He'd written letters and letters and letters and they must have sunk by, to the bottom of the ocean. Now, granted, correspondence got lost on the Atlantic all the time, but there's no way that all of his letters were lost. <laughs> right, uh, yeah, And exactly. it pulled on Nabby's heartstrings terribly to feel so disconnected from someone who she had hoped to begin a life with. And so when it was formally called off, when she wrote to Royal and said, I, I absolve this, we are, we are not connected anymore, I breathed a sigh of relief. And then it was not terribly long afterwards that Colonel Smith began his courtship of her, and, and they've been wed since. He's tried to do right by her, not as savvy financially as, as I would hope, but we are, I am glad at least that I, I have managed to make a, small nest for myself and for my family financially so that we can support Nabby and her children, even if Colonel Smith has not always the best luck doing so. When you look at the, the government as being created 
and the documents are being written and the men of history are making their seats where they will be forever remembered. If men and women in the roles had been a little bit more fair, do you think that you would have run for office or assuming that you know there was somebody to take care of the children, that you would have found yourself in some of those rooms? Would that have been a fit for you? That's a difficult thing to say. Um, even before in this conversation, I'll, I'll repeat it now, that I, I have no personal ambition for myself to become a great individual. And I should think that even if I had been afforded greater education and if there were not the same barriers between men and women, that I, I would still hold that as a, a firm part of my beliefs and my principles, not to ad advance my own ambition for the sake of ambition. Sounds like the words of a good president. <laughs> I am. Um, well, let me, let me ask the question a different way. The legislators of that time, where do you think they missed the boat? I mean, they obviously did a lot of good. We're the most powerful nation in the world. But they made some mistakes. What are some of the things, mistakes that they made, some opportunities that they missed that maybe if you had been the decision maker, you may have gone a different direction? Well, certainly in the establishment of the United States Constitution, I wish that there had been a greater attempt to end slavery or to, uh, at very least, lay the groundwork for slavery to be ended uh, in a period of time. It, it's a vast shame that it is a part of our national structure, both in history and in the present. And uh, as a growing nation and the way we're establishing our economy and our resources and our, our produce, it is so deeply entrenched in our national identity, and that is a terrible shame and embarrassment. I don't know if I would have had a solution to it. It's a terribly complex <clears throat> problem. But I really do wish that there had been more radical change as far as abolition of slavery goes in the establishment of the country. I should also like to see greater protection of rights, as we said, for, for women, opportunity to own their own property, and then perhaps even from owning their own property, because property is on the basis on which citizenship and the ability to, to vote and to claim your representation is based, then if women were to own property, then perhaps they could have the enfranchisement as well, have, have the means to vote, the means to be politically active, since they were legal entities of their own right. I, I wish that efforts had been made to establish some of that uh, in the, the creation of the the Constitution. I am grateful that there were some protections laid out. I think it is a, a good document. I do not doubt the intelligence and the dedication and the good intentions of the men who wrote the Constitution. There are flaws, and as I, I mentioned earlier when we were speaking, there's the United States and its governance is still a bit of an experiment uh, uh, for, for me and my generation at this time. And I should like to hope that it is a flexible document as well, that, that if the experiment starts to prove flaws, that the provisions made for changes and for maintenance could hold. Yeah, it's truly hold amazing true. how flexible that document is because it does end up being very flexible but unbreakable, which is incredible because... Things that flex as much as that document has flexed, they break. And it hasn't broken yet. And it's been a long, long time. I'm very pleased to hear that. <laughs> that is, it is remarkable. 
I want to ask you, uh, we're, we're, I think we're, I'm going to run you out of time, and I just have had so much fun talking with you. A lot of times in these conversations I go into it, and I'm not 100% sure who I'm speaking with, not by name, but just what kind of person you are. And I, I really have an understanding that it appears that you're a person that comes from a family that was taught that you go into the world and you do good for all. And you do the best you can with the time you have, and you do unto others as you would want done to you. And it, it appears this is kind of the direction that, that you would want your life to go. And I, I think that's extraordinary. I think that in our time, or in any time, you probably would be a fantastic president. And I'm not kidding when I say that. But I, I want to ask you about some specific people, and then, if, and then we'll wrap this up, and I'll thank you for your time. Could you tell me what your thoughts are on, we talked a little bit about Samuel Adams. What are your thoughts on him? And by the way, I'm giving you a license right now to say anything without consequence, without being judged. You can tell the truth if you have strong feelings here. Oh, you're, you're pressing my boundaries as my father's daughter and the, the uh, strict rules not to speak ill of others. John's cousin Samuel ha- did have a lot of good came from him. A lot of good and movement of the revolutionary cause came through the actions of, of Samuel Adams and of his, his friends. I am not in agreement with the amount of violence that was used uh, at the time in which he was a, a strong political advocate. As I mentioned, the, the mob of Boston was just as much to be reckoned with and feared as a royal governor or a, a legislative body. <laughs> Uh, if not more so, because the mob acted without laws a great many of the time. Political movement in the 1760s in Boston and the early 1770s was often put in place by violent actions or by vast destructions of property, like the the destruction of the tea. And, And while the logic and theory and ideals behind the actions were sound and, and beautiful and radical, to rely on the violence of a mob to enact change for the better of the world is a very, very shaky way to gain power, to establish any kind of order and ideal governance from there. So I Do you agree, though, that some that. changes cannot be made without violence? Perhaps. I should think of that phrase, some change can't be made, or changes sometimes need violence to be made. I think more so it's a truth of nature Hmm. that sometimes violence is necessary for change. Wow. Rather than a maxim by which a human might live. Right. It shouldn't be our our guiding principle, like, written on the flag. <laughs> Some things just have to be solved by violence, right? I see what you're saying, though. As a, as, I think that as an intelligent race, that as, as the human beings who have been able to establish democratic forms of government and have been able to produce great literary works and have been able to claim natural rights, that we ought not to be weakened by that law of nature that sometimes violence is necessary for change, that as individuals and as people, we ought to find ways for change that are more elevated than acts of violence. Um, yeah, than punching somebody in the face. Sam Adams yeah. has always had to punch somebody in the face, though, didn't he? 
uh, I don't know if he got to punch in the face as many people as he wished to, um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I would imagine that Mr. Uh, Samuel might have struck a good deal more if he was, had more of that liberty. He could uh, quietly get away with it. <laughs> what would you say about Martha Washington? You two oh, seem like you were polar opposites to me. Oh, I, I have great respect for Mrs. Washington. I really could not speak ill of her. I'd say that our upbringing, our cultural background, and social standing are vastly different. That's certainly true. She grew up with many more resources. As we talked about before, the, the cultural differences between the North and the South and the way families and households are structured there. So, yes, an incredible amount of differences between us there. What a graceful woman, though. Even before being the wife of the president, I did not envy of that woman her role for being wife of the president oh, or yeah. wife of the commander-in-chief or the sacrifices she made as well with her life and the patient Christian cheer with which she accepted her lot and, and offered grace and beauty and stability to our nation. She's a... a mother of the nation. If George Washington was the father of the nation, then Mrs. Washington was our grand dam. And I was honored whenever I had the chance to stand by her side in, in formal receptions or any time we were privileged enough to dine with the Washingtons. I'll only speak her praises. I won't say okay. we were the closest of friends. But well, the last person that I'll ask you about, and I know that you had a a complicated relationship with this person at different times, and even, I understand, maybe helped in the raising of this person's daughter. And we've spoken of him a little bit, and that would, of course, be Thomas Jefferson. You, you, you became fond of Thomas Jefferson at times, but that, those feelings went back and forth. Am I right on that, or am I way off? No, you're correct. Uh, my, my feelings and my opinion and my lifelong relationship with Mr. Jefferson has been a complex one and tumultuous. There's much that I admire about the man. Vastly intelligent. He can have a delightful sense of humor. And the time when we were in France all together was a delight. A, a meeting of great minds. And I enjoyed being present to witness it and to witness men like John and like uh, Mr. Jefferson in, in their vitality in great moments. I loved being close to that. And Mr. Jefferson always a delight in conversation with women. And it was only as the years went by when I noticed his fickleness or the ways in which he had neglected his duties in some ways. Uh, you, you mentioned that I assisted for a period of time in the raising of his daughter. When she came to join him in Europe, uh, she was just a young girl. I, I think she might have been nine or so and arrived first in, in England where Mr. Adams and I were at the time. And I received her because Mr. Jefferson was not there to receive her. And I was somewhat embittered that he wasn't there to receive her. In fact, he didn't even come to, to fetch her after she had arrived in England. He sent a uh, an employee, a, a man who spoke French, and, and poor little Polly spoke no French, and, and was so desperately lonely. This girl's mother had died. She had not seen her father in years, had not maintained a relationship with him at all. I, I showed her a picture of him when she arrived to try to, to calm her heart, to give her a sense of security and say, look, it's your papa, and he 
you'll be reunited soon, and she barely recognized the picture. Wow. And in some ways, that really shed light on the ways that Mr. Jefferson could not be the god that many of this country have made him out to be. Um, He is a mortal man with failings, and while he has great intelligence and great cleverness and inventiveness and a, a, a love of science and advancement, his dedication to some of those things has come at the expense of other responsibilities. Uh, the maintenance of his family and the the closeness of his children, um, <laughs> the state of his finances. Uh, I wouldn't imagine to know the extent to which Mr. Jefferson is in debt, but just knowing the way he spent and the way I was always watching our uh, finances to make sure that we were not going into debt uh, and seeing how he spared no expense uh, sending goods from Europe back to back to America or purchasing books or, or fine suits or living in style. I, I should imagine that his is not an estate that is in secure standing for those who will come after him. Um, there has undoubtedly been some neglect on that part. How's the Adams household after just losing the presidency to him? Well, uh, there are highs and lows to it. Um, it was a shame that John did not uh, get a a second term as president. And I think he would have done a very good job with it. And I think if news of of peace with France had come a little bit earlier, tides might have been different. But it is what it is, and Mr. Jefferson now sits in that seat. In the meantime, I am grateful that now that John is out of office, we know that having come home, we are home for good. (laughs) We have spent far too long traveling and sacrificing our time and energy and attention and finances and everything for the country. So this prospect of of now settling back in in Quincy and being in our house, which I I arranged to have uh, expanded a a few years ago, it was intended to be a secret for John uh, in 1797 while he was president. I Again, through my uncle, negotiated the expansion of our home. Unfortunately, a visitor from Massachusetts mentioned it to Mr. Adams and said, oh, the expansions on Peacefield have have grown uh, quite nicely. I think they're coming along well, which ruined the surprise. But John was so very happy that our house was made a bit bigger. After going to France, we were never able to live in quite as as small a house again as we had left. And and while I purchased the old Vassalboyland estate, again through my uncle, while we were making our plans to come home from Europe, while we remembered the house as being certainly more spacious than our our first home, when we got into it, it felt like a wren's nest. The ceiling was too low. It was cramped. uh, Compared with everything in in Europe, it was quite tiny. and so it was in desperate need of the expansion. But yeah, I now that you mentioned that a, me- a minute ago. It's hard to come back from France to anything else, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yes. So I, I like the plainness of Massachusetts in comparison, but uh, it was a bit tight. <laughs> um, but having expanded the house now, we, we have the opportunity to have our remaining children, to have our, our grandchildren with us, staying for long terms. It is a... a full and jovial house. And of course, being the former president and first lady of the United States, there's visitors all of the time. And and for John to be a retired statesman, 
have the world come to him, have him be able to sit in his own library and read his own books and perhaps write memoirs. It, there's great hope to us now being home again. I do hope yes. that all of the years going forward are that easy and that enjoyable because your sacrifice to our nation has been extraordinary, but it's not just the sacrifice, what you've added to our history because you wrote it all down. We will forever be thankful for that. And I, I thank you for your time today. It has been a joy speaking with you. Well, thank you, Mr. Dean. I, I had quite a good time speaking with you as well. And I, I hope that as you uh, share this conversation with others, as you said you, did, you were able to do, that uh, perhaps some preconceptions you might have had about about my husband or myself will be eased. It's always better to know a person in full rather than just the small one or two words which might be recorded on them in history. This has been quite a pleasure. Without Abigail acting as a counterweight, John Adams may have looked like a less powerful man with specific goals and more like an out-of-control forest fire. Lots of energy and no way to focus it. History remembers Abigail Adams as one of the first women to take a strong position for the rights of women. She knew what was right and what was just, and she used all of her influence and self-taught knowledge to make the world what it could be rather than what it was. She was fiscally responsible, caring, gentle, powerful, intelligent, and definitely humble. If every White House had a person with such traits at the helm, the world would be a better place. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do. And thank you for listening. I'm Tony Dean. And until next time, I'm history.